Hello and welcome back to The Big Run. Today's guest is a 40-plus marathoner, a successful journalist and author. Back in 2016, he suffered a severe trauma that resulted with him living with PTSD. It was through running that he's been able to learn to cope with the event and it inspired him to reach out to others who have found peace and healing through movement. These collected stories form the basis of his book, Outrunning the Demons. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm delighted to welcome Phil Hewitt. So, Phil, thank you so much for for joining me on the big run today. Really excited to to get into your into your story. Um, I'm really fascinated to learn all about it. I'd love to dial all the way back because I know you're you're a journalist as well. I, I'd love to start with where that journey began for you. Like, has that has that always been has that always been a passion for you? Sort of like reporting a and telling journalist. people stories. Um, yeah. I, think was, I think it was always in the back of my mind. And then I did a lot of academia. I did a degree mm. in French and German at Oxford, and just loved Oxford, and just couldn't get out of my system, and was looking for a reason to stay in Oxford a bit longer. So did a PhD there for another three years. And in a way, a PhD is a fantastic thing to do. It's really exciting. It's really interesting. But in a way, it's quite isolating because you're looking at something so narrow that I think thoughts of journalism kind of floated back into my mind as a way of really actually being in the community. I was researching for three years a long dead French dramatist who had been forgotten by everyone apart from me and has still been forgotten by everyone. So who, who was a French dramatist? There was, was a guy that? called Le Normand who was okay. very, very popular in the early 1920s. And I spent three years arguing that his great success in the early 1920s opened up the great flourishing of French theatre in the 1930s. And it was just his misfortune that he opened the doors, everyone charged through and he was forgotten. But <laughs> I don't think I persuaded anyone, but I had a nice time doing it. But it was quite obscure. Uh, it was fantastically worth doing. I loved doing it. But I think I looked to journalism as a way of doing something that was absolutely in the community. And I think journalism is... is I kind of reflects your personality as well. You've got to be a bit nosy, a bit chatty, and that's me. And yeah, and committed to being part of the community. So mm. from the PhD, I went straight into journalism, and I love it. It's challenging. It's knackering. It's it's infuriating at times, and it's relentless at times. But it's never less than interesting, and that is the crucial thing in work. I think yeah. <laughs> if you've got work that stimulates you, I think you're basically okay. Where do you find I uh, interesting the, the the challenging and the and the sort of knackering side because there's there's the obvious parallels to to running which we will definitely come on to yeah like when you're when you're chasing a, a particular a story and doors are being closed and stuff like that like finding that resolve to find new avenues of re- approach does that is that does that require a lot of a lot of um, it probably would do if that was my line I'm not doing the news side of things so I don't get doors shut in my face I'm doing the arty arty stuff or the lovely oh, okay. things in life or the theatre and uh, um books and music and so on and bands and yeah all the lovely things the things that enhance life rather than the car crashes and the dramas so yeah it's unfortunate that mostly I'm speaking to people who are very keen to speak to me because they're speaking about the work that they're doing and the the shows the bands the music etc the books that they're coming up with so yeah um, I don't have to pursue too much which is nice okay so what have you have you had any like standout highlight interviews with people that you've done like oh my goodness we're two a lovely guy that I in the last couple of weeks or so a lovely guy that I love interviewing just because he's the perfect gentleman and so interesting David Suchet Sir David Suchet 
Mm. He is so fascinating and he is just so charming. And he treats every question with respect. It doesn't matter how many times he's been asked it, but he comes up with interesting answers. And week before last, couldn't believe it, an interview with Roger Daltrey. My absolute idols are Uh. the Rolling Stones, but I've always, always loved the Who. And it's rare to get a bit nervous about an interview, but just knowing that the next person I was going to be speaking to was Roger Daltrey, it was, yeah, incredibly exciting. And I thought, oh my goodness, you know, what if he's awful? What if he's horrible? Will Mm. I still be able to like the who? But goodness, he wasn't. He was just so chatty, so friendly, just such a lovely, lovely guy. And it's just, yeah, times like that, you think this job is one hell of a privilege. 25 minutes of Roger Daltrey's time, ask him anything. It's so lovely to get him to reminisce about Keith Moon, about all the things that the band have done, about it, you know, coming back into uh, the live arena again. Yeah. And lovely, lovely guys. So fabulous people I interview. Yeah. It's uh, it's really interesting that idea of like meeting your heroes. You know, they say that whether you should oh, you or shouldn't, you shouldn't. You shouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> that must be right. and, and, and being nervous as well, because like, you know, with these these like, I know we're getting a little bit meta, sort of two people who do interviews talking about interviewing, but like that thing of uh the the nervousness, but like maintain like controlling that and also knowing you've got a job to do and there's stuff that you're trying to to achieve like is that a craft that you've kind of had to sort of hone over the years to know like I think so I think you just get used to it you I don't know you don't become blase you just take it in your stride and then occasionally a a really exciting interview comes along and then yeah perhaps the nervousness does creep back in but I just said to him right at the start I'm going to try and be a professional journalist rather than someone who's a fan who's adored your (laughs) music for the past 45 years he just laughed that broke the ice and he was just fabulous to talk to yeah so that was a, a great great highlight oh, fantastic so when did when did running come into your life then? well oddly it came in through journalism it was something I'd always oh, okay. thought about doing and done a little bit but then in 1998 we were through the paper supporting an appeal to fund an extra Macmillan nurse in West Sussex in where I work through Macmillan And I was writing pieces in the paper at that time, doing the news side of things, writing stories about people who had lost people to cancer or people who had benefited from Macmillan. Really quite tough stories um, every week to try and raise this money. And it just so happened that Macmillan that year were given some extra places for the London Marathon the following Mm. year. And they offered it to us in the paper. And instantly it was offered to our sports editor, who was about 18 stone, fabulously unfit. And he thought about it for about two days. And then we sort of pointed out that when you run, you hit your knees with four or five times your body weight. So he'd be crashing his knees about 90 stone every step of the way. He realised fairly quickly it wasn't going to happen. And then I just chipped in as the arts editor. I want to do it. And everyone laughed, you know, the thought of a arty ferty type getting hot and sweaty over 26.2 miles. They seemed to find very funny, which I found slightly offensive, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so it just made me all the more determined to do it. Mm. So with the help of the Macmillan fundraiser in West Sussex, who was a committed and very good marathon runner, I started training and just loved it. And it just, oh, it just chimed. At the time, our children were fairly small. And goodness, this is going to sound selfish, but I think in some ways it's quite difficult to make that switch from being in the office and taking yourself seriously to having two small children who are jumping up Mm. and down over you. Running was, yeah, it does sound selfish, but running was a bit of a bridge between the two sides of my life. And 
I just, I don't know. I just felt so much better when I ran and I just kept on running, did that first marathon. Um, How was your first marathon? How was your first sort of London experience? Oh, it was just fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. And I wrote it up in the paper afterwards with a really stupid conclusion saying, will I do another one? No. One is a fabulous number. Two is a very small number. But I soon ate those words and started doing extra marathons and just nibbled away doing two, three marathons a year all the way through to um, the trauma, uh, Mm. which happened in my life in 2016. At which point I realised that what I'd been doing all along was actually going to be you know, a big part of my salvation, a big part of my return to health. It wasn't like I discovered running as a way of coping with trauma. It was there already and just running fulfilled a need I, well, I didn't have until that point. So let's 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 get into this then. So this this kind of incredibly significant event that happened yeah. in, in your life. Do you do, do you mind sort of sharing that that story Absolutely for the for not. the listeners? Absolutely not. No. Um, running is a great passion of mine, but so too is cricket. And I'd long had an ambition to go and watch England play cricket abroad, and I had that chance in February 2016 when England were playing a couple of uh, games in Cape Town in, in February 2016. And I looked online, discovered the tickets were absurdly cheap. And an old mate of mine who used to work with in Chichester had gone back to South Africa. He was quite near Cape Town, so it was a chance to meet up with him. He wasn't interested in the cricket, so I booked the tickets for me. And I flew out there and just had a fabulous day watching England lose. Yeah, yeah, they lost. And de Villiers got a fabulous hundred, but what a privilege to be there. And the point was, it was just so exciting to be there. Uh, Newlands is just such a beautiful cricket ground. Your side onto Table Mountain, the sun was setting, just the sheer thrill of being there. And the South Africans all around were so funny when Joe Root came out and was out first ball. And they thought it was hilarious that I'd travelled, I don't know, 7,000 miles to watch Joe Root out first ball. But it was just a great spirit. And even though Lincoln lost, I just left the ground on a high and started walking back. Um, I'd made no proper plans for getting back from the ground, which was about six or seven miles outside central Cape Town. I just thought I'd prolong the pleasure of the day and walk. Either that or I'd see a bus or a taxi or thumb a lift. Well, there were no buses, no taxis. I tried to thumb a lift a bit. No one was no one was stopping for me, so I just kept walking. And it was fine for a while. I was asking a few people, am I heading in the right direction? But slightly worryingly, they're saying, yes, you are, but I wouldn't do it if I was you. But I, I don't know. I was stupid. I should have should have heeded that and just kept going. And after about three miles, I got to a point where the only way to walk into central Cape Town was to walk along the hard shoulder of a motorway, which was bleeding scary. It was sort of half six-ish on a Sunday night. It was fairly busy. It was eight lanes of motorway. It was fairly fast. And the hard shoulder disappeared after a while. So I scrambled up onto a bank. So I was walking about six foot above the motorway. And then this little path above the motorway stopped in a mass of brambles. I was looking around thinking, have I got in this stupid situation? So looking mm-hmm. around, I can see on the far side of the motorway, there's a little path leading down into a kind of development. So I thought, oh, well, that's the way out. So it's a bit scary jumping four or five foot down onto the motorway with no hard shoulder, then legging across the motorway and then scrambling down this bank. And then I scrambled through this little community and came into this open part of Cape Town, the suburb, which I instantly knew from research before was uh, District 6. And I also knew it was one of the most dangerous parts of Cape Town and a place that I really shouldn't have 
15 and I mm. still don't think the alarm bells were ringing that much. I was just thinking, oh, well, I can see central Cape Town on the horizon, probably a mile and a half away, just stride out very quickly. Let's get through this. And District 6 was bulldozed in February 1966, exactly 50 years before. It was a black housing area. It was just bulldozed under apartheid. Mm. And I think it's some kind of protest that no one has ever moved back into it. So it's just open, urban, rubble and wasteland, just desolation on the edge of Cape Town. And I just started to try and walk through it. And I lasted about two minutes because there was a pitter-patter of feet behind me. This guy ran up and asked very colourfully for my camera. And as he did so, he seemed to punch me a couple of times in the leg. And I went over with the force of what I thought were punches and pulled him. And he landed behind me and was kicking me in the back and trying to knee me in the head, just trying to kick me as much as he possibly could. And somehow he grabbed hold of my camera, lovely camera around my neck. Um, and we were tussling that, and I sort of turned around, and he was starting to kick me in the stomach and trying to sort of knee me under the chin, kick me in the neck. And at that point, I looked down and saw my leg was just absolutely covered in blood, just totally awash with blood. And I realised that what I thought were punches were, in fact, knife wounds. Uh, it's so odd that you think a knife wound should would be something really sharp. It just felt a really sort of blunt force. Just a, It just felt like a thump, but clearly it wasn't because there was just mm. so much blood. So I let go of my camera at that point, and I think I probably asked him something stupid like, can I at least keep the memory card? But I don't think he was in negotiation mode at that point. But the key thing was, by resisting, I'd really, really annoyed him, and he just stood over me. There's no way I was going to get up. He just stood over me and kicked and kicked and kicked mm. and just kicked my ribs in, kicked me in the you know, face, back, ribs, everything. And then when he had had enough of just kicking me, he just went. He just ran off. And I think one of the enduring memories of the whole thing is just lying there watching him disappear in the distance just thinking are, are you going to turn around and look back are you going to check I'm okay but no absolutely he didn't he just disappeared ran off with my camera leaving me and I was on the sort of grassy bit to the side of the road at that point so I tried to stand absolutely couldn't and pulled myself onto the pavement which was a slightly traumatizing thing to do in some ways because it became evident on the pavement just how much I was bleeding mm. and the blood was sort of around my leg um, and it's horrible because you're trying not to look at it but you're wanting to look at it mm. and I think that's when the shock kind of hit or probably the blood loss I think because I just felt monumentally tired just lying there just absolutely wanting to shut my eyes and just thinking shut my eyes was the way that would take me out of this situation but it would probably also have been the decision which would have killed me because no one would have stopped for you know apparently a corpse in a pool of blood by the side of the road so I, it's odd, isn't it? Because what goes through your mind in those moments of extremists, one of the things that I still find funny is I found huge consolation in that moment thinking that I could well die here. I felt so pleased that I was wearing my favourite Rolling Stones T-shirt. I love <laughs> the Rolling Stones. I adore the Rolling Stones. And I was wearing a favourite Rolling Stones T-shirt, which was given me by my daughter, Laura. So that was a comfort. And... I think, yeah, just lying there, trying to fight this tiredness. That's when the survival instinct kicked in. 
And I realised that if I did give in to the tiredness and lie back, shut my eyes, that would be it. So I had to try and prop myself up and just try and look around like I was still in the land of the living, which I did. And I was wearing my running Garmin watch, so I can tell you this is about 90 seconds, a minute and three quarters after the attack. A car pulled up, at which point, so my vision was just slightly blurring. I was aware of a sort of grubby-looking white car with red writing on the side. And this bloke came running towards me, and it transpired he was a pizza delivery driver. Poor chap, Butler's Pizza Company of Cape Town. So he was dressed like a butler in a frilly red, frilly um, dress, dress shirt and a red bow tie. And he lifted me up and just hopped me into the back of the car where, what a hero, he did something that would never, ever occur to me. He got me in the back of the car and elevated my leg just to try and stop the bleeding a bit. And he pulled my leg up onto this pile of pizzas. (laughs) And and often think, you know, there were probably quite a few people in Cape Town that night who did not get their delivery. (laughs) (laughs) But I think the other thing that really strikes me about that moment of rescue was he had this lovely girl with him who's probably about 16, 17, something like that. And she jumped out of the car and started walking towards me. And I don't think she had realised why he had stopped And so my vision wasn't great at that point, but I was aware of this girl just standing, absolutely petrified, just rigid, just horror-stricken, just mouth wide open, just staring at me. And for a long time, I felt so sorry, you know, that I was the cause of that to her. But I think in some ways that struck me so much because her expression was just the perfect reflection of the situation I was in. Mm. Poor girl. I just hope and pray that she doesn't think back to that day. But at least she knows I survived. But this guy, Stephen, the pizza delivery driver, got me in the car. And then he had to dash back out to get this girl and pull her back into the car and force her to sit down in the front. And he was just brilliant. He was just amazing. He drove towards central Cape Town. It was a Sunday night and fairly soon it started getting busy and he started hitting loads of red lights. And he just pulled up the car, yanked his pizza sign off the roof. It was clearly detachable. Shoved it in the back with me. He said, hold this. I took it. And then he drove off and just went through every red light (laughs) to get me to hospital. And I don't really truly remember arriving at hospital, but I do remember him coming out of the hospital building with a wheelchair, getting me in it and shoving something in my hand, which I later realised was his phone number. You know, that was just brilliant, wasn't it? Just that level of care. So I was taken into um, A&E. No idea what the wounds were at that point. Absolutely no idea. All I could see was just blood, um, which had spread quite a lot. So I didn't know what the seat of the injuries were. So I was quickly um, washed and turned out I had... So a six-inch gash to my calf and a very, very deep wound to my thigh. So clearly he was just trying to immobilise me. I didn't think he was trying to kill me. But I also had three broken ribs and some cuts to my hand where I guess, I don't remember, I guess I must have tried to protect myself. Mm. So I ended up with 18 stitches, three broken ribs and a really messed up head, though I don't think I realised that instantly. Mm. Um it's yeah. uh, it's extraordinary just and I, I firstly thank you for your kind of candor and courage in in talking about it so so openly and with with such detail 
<laughs> Too much detail, probably. No, but it's 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 extraordinary, isn't it? In those moments of of adrenaline and of trauma and of shock, as the level of registers. detail yeah, that absolutely. you can recall, yeah. you know the the outfit the delivery driver was wearing, the name of the pizza company, the ninety seconds that you clocked on your Garmin watch, like to know when he'd arrived, the girl that was outside of the car, like all of that just imprinting like on a like a molecular level within your kind of memory and also in those moments like the the kind of the the two extremes of of humanity like running into one another within the space of i don't know five minutes minutes, you know being attacked by someone trying to steal your camera and then moments later being rescued by someone like it's i always find that extraordinary like my not, not, not just to like from personal experience, my, my brother was involved in quite a serious motorbike accident. And at the scene of the crash, there was people trying to move his bike out of the way so they could get onto work because it was a rush hour. Oh. And there was also people trying to, um, trying to keep him warm and stop him from going into shock. And like those, oh, there's two extremes of humanity that meet in those moments. Where, Is he okay? Yes, he's fine now. He's fine. Like he still has um, some injuries that require surgery, and he's sort of slowly coming back to some mobility and yeah. his sort of upper body and stuff. But um, it's always extraordinary in those moments where you you see the the the, the yin and the yang of of humanity Absolutely. kind of blown I, blown I apart. I keep thinking with Stephen that you know what extent was he exposing himself to risk by stopping because it yeah. was an awful part of Cape Town, and there's lots of carjackings. Obvious, I think that I was genuine. I wasn't faking anything. Mm. But he, it would have been so easy, would it not, just to have driven on and mm-hmm. thought, that's not my problem. And if he had, I have not the sh- slightest shadow of a doubt, I would have died. And do you think it was because you'd forced yourself to to stay awake and have your eyes open and be conscious? Do you think that like so he noticed me? Yeah, yeah. I, I imagine so. You wouldn't stop for a corpse, and oh. yeah, I, I say it's that survival instinct, just trying to look like I was still alive and try and look like I was still a you know living and breathing and looking around. I think and mm. just trying to attract attention. So I think that's one of the the worst things, isn't it? Because I knew my survival depended on someone else. There was nothing I could do. Yeah, absolutely nothing I could do. What else I thought found extraordinary in those moments when you talked about when he went to pull your camera away, and you asked for for the memory or, or the film of the the equivalent. It's it's always interesting in, in those moments the 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 sort of the simplest and sort of thoughts that run through your mind in moments of like a real trauma and terror like let, let me have the film in my camera like I, you know yeah. like, to save my photos of joe root in the nets that morning <laughs> yeah it's just it's, it's incredible the the you just cling to something i guess don't you yeah the paths the brain travels down in those moments is is extraordinary so like so you 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 went back to the hospital that you kind of they gave you a, a summation of what, what had happened to you and your extraordinary amount of yeah of they injuries. sorted me out and I think in the great scheme of things in Cape Town I probably wasn't the worst that they'd seen you know it wasn't major yeah. trauma but um, yeah I have the one gap in the story is they um, let me go after a couple of hours mm-hmm. and took me to various kiosks where they charged me. And it was the same bloke standing behind each kiosk. The first one was for the hospital time. The next one was some medication. The bloke sidestepped to the next kiosk. They say sidestepped to the next kiosk and they charged me for the doctor's time. And then the fourth kiosk, he was standing there with a pair of crutches, which he wanted to sell me. I thought, no, I, I don't want your crutches. And I think I threw a bit of a wobbler there. And the next thing I remember is I was back in the holiday let, a holiday apartment, which is about five, six floors up with a fantastic view of Table Mountain. 
and I think I must have had a little bit of a tantrum. Said no, you bloody well take me back to the take me back to the flat. But I have no recollection of that, apart from the next thing I remember. I was just sitting on the floor in the darkness in the flat, unable to stand, and they hadn't even turned the light on. And I just had to somehow get through that night, unable to stand, could just about reach the iPad to make the call back home to say to my wife, uh, Fiona, something's happened, I'm okay. Oh and then just basically had to sit there all night until I could crawl out into the corridor the next morning and crawl across the floor, reach up, get in the lift, get the lift down to the ground floor. And the ground floor opened up one side into the, the holiday let foyer which I knew would be empty, or the other side into um, a shopping arcade. So I just crawled out of the lift into the sort of shopping mall. Um, some poor woman just pushing her kitty along in a pushchair saw me covered in, absolutely covered in dry blood, just screamed and summoned the police. And then I was scooped up and that was the next morning. And the police were able to get hold of my mate, Tony, who the night before we went together because I was going to the cricket, but he was celebrating his daughter's engagement. Mm. And then he arrived on the scene and took control. And I just staggered through that week and even went back to a second cricket ground, a second, second cricket game at that same Really? Ground. Yeah. But taken, taken, delivered to the door and picked up from the door by Tony's daughter. They were taking no risks. Yeah. I mean, um, but it's still extraordinary. Like, there's so much to unpack from what you've just said there. So, well, like, I bought the ticket. God, <laughs> I was going to be there again. And fair, fair play, but also like the, the period of... T- so from... From you being discharged from the hospital and being charged at the hospital to I going was, back to your flat, like what was this? How long was that period of time? Oh, I I should have been kept in for some sort of observation. I yeah. think I don't know. That's probably just me being overkind to myself. But I think as soon as I scooped up by Tony, I just went on to sort of autopilot and just didn't want to, you know, upset his happy week for Reba, his daughter's engagement. Mm. I just sort of tried to behave and be cheerful and get through the week. And I think it was only when I got to the airport to fly back that it really hit me, the extent Mm. of what I'd been through. Um, Do you think you were still in shock? And you were going to the cricket matches and carrying on. Absolutely, absolutely. There's no way you can process that, the enormity of it. Uh, It it takes time. It takes time. Mm. I think it really hit me. Standing at the airport, um, I had to change in Istanbul on the way back. And just dreading this flight. It's so uncomfortable. Three broken ribs and two great big holes in my leg and just battered all over. I went up to the desk and said... um, ever so sorry to be a nuisance I've been stabbed any chance I can have a slightly more comfortable seat and the woman said well why didn't you say days ago you know the plane is absolutely packed and the flight back was awful absolutely awful I've never been more uncomfortable in my life you know trapped with those injuries in a really confined space and got back and I think that's when it really really hit me and yeah when I got back all the questions just besieged me, just went round and round and round my head. And I'm a journalist and I'm asking questions all day, every day, just endless, mm-hmm. endless questions and always getting answers. But these were billions of questions to which I couldn't get answers. I, you know, stupid things like, how long had you followed me for? And I was conscious I'd made so many bad decisions that actually brought me to that moment. Mm-hmm. At what point could I have 
taken a different path? At what point could I have prevented it from happening? And I want to know what he did with my camera, where he's from, if he's okay. And I still want to know if he's alive because, you know, he wouldn't carry on doing that with impunity. At some point, he would try and mug someone who was carrying a gun and just turn around and shoot him. And I hope he's alive. But all these things I didn't know. And I wanted to know, basically, I think the thing I still want to know is to what extent was I to blame? I was reckless. I was really, really stupid in so many different ways, and I can see that now. And those thoughts just whizzed around my head for the first couple of weeks of being back home, and just no peace. And I'd write down endless lists of questions, of four or five hundred questions, stupid things that I wanted no answers to, that, and the answers wouldn't tell me anything, even if I could get them. But I was just going around the twist. And after two weeks, Fiona said, "Come on, we're going out. We're going out shopping." And we went to um, a precinct in Fareham in Hampshire and wandering around very gingerly. And she left me in Boots, the chemist. And I had the most monumental panic attack there, which was really difficult. And um, I just didn't know what was going to happen, whether I was going to faint or throw up or scream or cry or just run out of the building or whatever. I just stood there and just sort of tried to hold my nerve, just tried to ride it, just tried to get through it. And I think the odd thing is probably no one walking past me would have had an foggiest what was happening in my mm. mind at that point. But it was awful. And Fiona came back and I said what had happened. We all got back to the car, got back home, and she said, you need to go back to the doctors. So I booked an appointment with our practice nurse the next morning, who is a marathon runner a 238 London marathon runner, the swine, a brilliant marathon runner. <laughs> so I went to see him and I said, look, this happened in boots. You know, you couldn't think of anywhere less threatening than boots, really, could you? Mm. To have this astonishing panic attack. It was horrible. In some ways, that was as horrible as the, the knifing in some ways. And I said, look, uh, clearly my wounds are infected. This was two weeks afterwards. And he looked at them and said, no, Phil, uh, I think the wounds are healing really nicely. Um, you're not there yet, but they are healing. Do you think you ought to talk to someone about this? And everything in me rebelled against that. So I got home, thought it all through and decided to do two things. My own very stubborn two point recovery plan. First, I wrote down everything. I started to write down everything, every last detail, all those things, as you say, so imprinted in my mind from what happened, just every last gruesome, humiliating, horrible detail. And then the very next day, I went for a run, and it was a beautiful spring morning, absolutely lovely spring morning, just at the start of March. And, oh my goodness, it hurt. So two holes in my leg, broken ribs, still bruised and battered very tender stomach and back and neck but just something lifted just for running running so badly so lopsidedly you know stab wounds on the left hand side and broken ribs on the right is is not the best recipe for running but just something lifted and it was just bliss just absolutely wonderful just something reconnected and just suddenly found that I could see that perhaps I was still me rather than, you know, Phil had been stabbed. Suddenly there was the Phil who at that point had run 30 marathons started breaking through. Um, yeah, it was just a complete blissful liberation or return or whatever it was. It was just mm. sublime just to be running again. And yeah, just a kind of 
the start of a return to me. So I just continued running and I continued writing, writing down my thoughts on the recovery. And after a couple of months, I think I had kind of the full story, though obviously not remotely recovered, and was asking around and someone mentioned Matt Lowing, the commissioning editor at Bloomsbury Books. So I sent off a draft of the book, which... Um, well, it's just basically my story. Sent it off to Matt, who fortunately knew one or two of my other running books, um, Keep On Running and In The Running. And so he recognised the name and gave it a read and liked it and made the point, a really very, very good point, that there was absolutely no commercial potential in a book about one unknown stabbed runner. He said what he wanted the book to be would be a much wider book about running in the wake of trauma interviews mm -hmm. with lots of people who've been through awful things and kind of sandwich bookended by my story but interviews in between with other people who've you know the tagline for the book is kind of people who've been to hell but have discovered the surest safest quickest best way back from hell is to run and, and this is this is became outrunning the demons outrunning the demons which is a it's a collection of of i like you say different different stories of people who've who've kind of process trauma through running and I'd, I'd love to dive into some of the stories that are in the book because they're, they're, they're absolutely ex extraordinary but I'm interested just going back to that that first that first run after after the event and that 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 clarity that sort of presence you found like I mean it's I imagine it's hard to articulate but w what was it about the act of running that gave you that sense of sort of peace almost that you hadn't been able to find up until that point i think the lovely thing is running stops you asking questions in some ways doesn't it i think that the essence of trauma is you are trapped in a moment you if i relax now if i stop trying to busy my mind with other things then what breaks through so quickly painfully quickly is just being on that pavement conscious of the wetness of the blood around me just conscious of the conviction that I will be dead in a few minutes unless something happened and I couldn't make something happen the things I was saying just now but thing about running is it's just the most brilliant way of bringing you back to the present moment brings you back to the here and now and I think it's really interesting that I hate running with music now I just couldn't do it. I'd feel vulnerable. And I always used to run with music. But mm. now the only music I want when I run is to hear my breathing, to hear the traffic around, to hear my footsteps, to hear the wind through the trees, just to be conscious of everything that's around. And I say it's, it's mindfulness, isn't it, really? Yeah. And yeah. I think that's what running gave me. Running in that moment was the furthest I've been away from the trauma of the stabbing. It's extraordinary. Uh -huh. you, I think you articulate it beautifully. It is it's it's that mindfulness about being completely present. And I think you know trauma, not aside, but I think everyone to a certain extent is would would say that you know the, the sort of world that we live in today is one where we are constantly distracted by our own thoughts, by questions, by social yeah. media, by by whatever whatever it is. And I think I think. A lot of people would chime with what you're saying is that with with running is that it's that that moment where you are able to just be completely completely present w within yourself in a way that 
Absolutely. imagine you know processing Absolutely. that trauma you know w- wouldn't have necessarily al- allowed you to 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 do that I and think. i think the lovely thing about doing the interviews it allowed me to really formulate all the ways in which i think that running absolutely undoes trauma and i think the first way it undoes trauma is let's say trauma is fixation in that moment but running brings you back to the here and now mm. but the other big component of trauma i think is the absolute loss of control the fact that lying there in the blood there was nothing i could do nothing i could do i was totally utterly powerless and i love all the sort of mini decisions make when you make when you run that uh, you know running does hand you back control i love the fact that you pull open your running drawer and you think oh should i have wear the yellow top today or the blue top or the green top or the red top whatever and then you decide get out to your door should i turn left or right and i love the decisions that you make should i turn yeah do how many miles shall i do how quickly shall i do them should i do a little detour here shall i scoot between the next two lampposts it's all back down to you running is control and that's what i think really really helps you when you're running with a traumatized mind it does give you back that control and the other thing is i think trauma is profoundly isolating you feel like you're in a kind of glass jar and you sort of think oh no one understands the way i feel and you can be a bit precious well i probably have been about the trauma and yeah just feeling incredibly isolated but do you know i know running is the most fabulous generous community isn't it mm-hmm. even if you're running by yourself you're never really alone because I don't know runners are lovely people, aren't they? Runners yeah. are people who like to chat. Runners are sociable people, and it's a proper community. So, all the people I interviewed for the book, and they're a fabulous bunch of people, a really wonderful, generous, humane bunch of people. They became became kind of my support group, I think, for this trauma because we're all at different points in our own trauma. And I think it's thirty-four interviews in the book, and I think of us all running the same marathon, this undefined race towards this finishing line that's going to say you are healed and of course none of us are ever going to be truly healed and we're all at different points along this race but we're all heading in that same direction and i think there's huge comfort in that that we're all yeah running the same race with Mm. our slightly traumatized minds i love that i love that sort of uh i love that analogy of yeah you're all kind of in, in that race together sort of communally pulling each other through that but and obviously there's an extraordinary uh, amount of stories in the book and not to sort of you know put light on one over the other but are there are there some that have particularly sort of stood out that you'd want yeah, to talk about yeah I, I the struck the jackpot with the very first interview I did and the way I set about it was a little bit crass I was just sort of googling things like runner murder runner trauma marathon bombing etc and the book covers all sorts of horrible situations and uh, people who've been bereaved, people who've had loved ones murdered, even one guy who's run 100 marathons since his cancer diagnosis, people who've lost people in Iraq or Iran, um, people who've been on the brink of suicide. But one of the most impressive stories, one of the ones that moves me most, was the first phone call I made. A lovely woman called Teresa Gimona, who lives in Queens in New York, and her husband Vinny was a New York City firefighter. And I guess, you know, as soon as I say that, you can guess what happened. And would you believe his 40th birthday? She was so lovely to talk to, so so willing to talk, and so beautiful in the way she described what she'd been through. But her husband Vinny 
his 40th birthday, would you believe, was on 9-11. And he was making his plans for celebrating that well in advance that year. So in, I think, the May or June, he had signed up for the New York City Marathon, which was in the November, i.e. six weeks after 9-11. And so he spent the summer training, looking forward to it. And he had a big family day planned for 9-11. He worked the night before, came off duty seven in the morning, went for a little training run, from the uh, fire station in downtown Manhattan, where he was based. Went for a little run, probably thinking about the fact that he would be off duty soon. He was meeting up with his wife. He had four daughters under 10 at that point, and they were going off for a couple of school sports days and then a family barbecue in the evening. He got back to the fire station uh, just after nine and discovered everything was kicking off. And it was just completely in his character that he got back in his kit and was among the first firefighters down there and just went straight in, went straight in. And he was never, ever seen again. And they didn't even find his body, poor chap. Mm -hmm. And there was this awful first 10 days, Teresa was saying, when there was hope, wasn't there, that more people had survived than they thought, that people had probably been trapped in underground shopping malls. And Mm -hmm. she was hoping, hoping, hoping. And then... On 10 days after on 9-11, they went by boat to Ground Zero. And she said as soon as she arrived at Ground Zero and the air was still thick with dust, she just knew that Vinny was dead. And what really hit her, I mean, mother of four girls under 10, him dying on his 40th birthday, so much to look forward to, so much hope, so much expectation. What really hit her was she hated the thought that his running number wouldn't go over the finish of the New York City Marathon six weeks later. So they moulded over and they got 13 people, friends, family, colleagues, ex, uh, college students, 13 mates, their own team. And would you believe they placed them two miles apart along the route of the New York City Marathon? And they tag-teamed his number, taking each of them running two miles, taking it from one to the next, one to the next, one to the next, one to the next, so that six weeks after he died, his number went over the finishing line of the New York City Marathon. And I find that just so overwhelmingly beautiful, isn't it? Absolutely beautiful. You're faced with this appalling loss. What do you do? You just break it down into pieces and you just try to put it back together again in whatever way you can. And what a moment that must have been. Mm-hmm. And um, a year later, two years later, his brother ran the New York City Marathon wearing his trainers, would you believe? Good job, they were the same size. And then four or five years later, a bit later, five years maybe, uh, Teresa ran it and she insists she's absolutely not a runner she hated the training she got knocked over by a car while she was training she damaged her knee seriously while she was training but she was scooped up by answer the call which is the new york city firefighters benevolent fund who just supported her and she was just part of that family and they looked after and she ran that marathon and she said she'd never felt closer to Vinny since his death than she had whilst doing that race that he should have done. Mm. And what's so interesting, it was the following year she did a New City half marathon that she said was for her. The marathon was for him. The half marathon was for her. And then she didn't run again. You know, it, it wasn't because she was a runner, but it's what she found through running and what it symbolised in that awful story of grief. Oh, I just think that's so powerful. It's, so incredibly yeah. powerful. It's extraordinary. Just... 
And what I find so what I find so extraordinary about your, yourself, Phil, and, and you know that that, that story, and, and I imagine all of the stories that are contained within your book is is the bravery of the individuals to share that trauma, which must be so painful on like on a public stage in the hope that it can like connect or move people and the the sort of the inherent power to do good that comes from something that was inherently awful at the time. And I always am just so, just so moved by people who can just like yourself can talk so freely and articulate about these, these moments and convert the sort of negative horrible trauma of that energy and like invert it and create something really powerful and and positive out of it i I think think it's it's because you learn by talking to to people who've suffered something similar isn't it i've had various therapies and i would never criticize therapy i think therapy is a wonderful thing but it's possibly more for people who struggle to talk about something Mm. i think my problem is i struggle to stop talking about it but i think through talking to people who've been in similar situations you learn something incredibly rich and if I could just mention another of the people Mm. I interviewed a a lovely girl in Australia who was about 32 at the time Carolyn Elliott and it was pretty much exactly a year before I had my incident she was running in a very remote part of Australia she was a PE teacher she was out for an early morning run and she's confronted by two big late teenagers two big lads who told her that they were going to rape her and they clearly where they they had something stuffed up a jumper which suggested that they had a gun they told her that they had a gun and her ordeal lasted half an hour during which time she thought at any moment she could have been shot and she went instantly she says into a kind of negotiate mode she told them what she was prepared to do and what she was prepared to do was absolutely hideous but it was a survival instinct and she was saying you don't want me I'm old I'm 32 I'm not I'm gay you don't want me and so she agreed to do something um, just to get away and the two boys once that inflicted this on her one of them started picking up her hair tie and saying, here, miss, here's your hair tie. And that's when it just struck her. She just grabbed it and legged it and ran. And the two boys were very quickly arrested and apprehended and charged. And it was going to go to trial. And they were going to deny it. It's it's unbelievable to think that they were going to deny it. But she was all geared up to um, testifying, to saying what had happened. And then on the day of the trial, The boys changed their plea to guilty. She wasn't required. She wasn't going to testify. She wasn't needed. And that's when it absolutely hit her, which is just unbelievable, isn't it? That's Mm. when it really hit her. And she tried to take her life in, in a really, really horrible way, which left her stomach very scarred. Um, but fortunately she found she was rescued. And what is so powerful about Caroline is that she says, she learned to love that scar because that scar, that moment when she tried to kill herself, opened up a massive change in her life. She realised then that she wasn't going to get taken back into teaching because she was seen as damaged goods and you know, traumatised and not good for the children. She realised that she was going to have to do something else. She realised that her best hope, what she wanted to do, was to retrain as a counsellor, a trauma counsellor my goodness, she's qualified. So she moved to another part of Australia, met her partner, um, Liv, 
who she married ooh, 18 months ago now, and she's one of Australia's first same-sex marriages. Absolutely groundbreaking. Inherited two lovely kids with the marriage. And she says everything good in her life, all her happiness comes from that scar. And that's why her mantra, her absolute mantra is, you've got to love your scar. And that's what I try to do. I've got a biggish scar on my thigh. And it stings all of the time. It's really stinging. I can feel it now. And I'm sure there's something I could do about it to get the scar treated so it doesn't sting. But I actually quite like the fact that it stings because it's like a, a permanent reminder that, yeah, this horrible thing happened to me, but I'm still alive. And boy, it stings during a marathon. The last three or four miles of a marathon, it really, really, really stings. But it's, you know, like, I don't know, Ben-Hur in the chariot whipping on. So I'm, come on, keep going, keep going, keep going. You are alive. And I love that scar. So it's all about learning to love the scar. And I think the big mistake I made in the first year or so of the trauma was just saying to myself all the time, come on, get over it. You're still alive. Nothing happened. You know, the point is, I'm alive. Therefore, nothing happened. Yes, something big did happen. And it took so long to realise that. And I think learning to love the scar is by far the healthier approach rather than get over it. Because if you learn to love the scar, you can take on board all that you've learned through the trauma. Get over it is dismissing it. It's like it hadn't happened. Love the scar is living with it. And I think, you know, it really isn't all bad. It absolutely isn't all bad. I think if you've been in this really strange moment where you are convinced that within minutes you'll be dead, and if you come back from that, I think you just have such a rich appreciation of life. Mm. You really do. It changes everything, and it's brought opportunities, lovely things, like talking to you now. We wouldn't have been talking mm. had I not been stabbed. I mean, it's not a direct route, but there's a connection, isn't there? Mm. I wouldn't have had the, the book with Bloomsbury, Outrunning the Demons. I wouldn't have had the friendship with all the wonderful runners. And what was so interesting, they were so open and willing to speak because I approached them as a British runner navigating trauma. I didn't phone up and say, hi, I'm a British journalist wanting mm. to write a book about trauma. You know, I was one of them. And it's a great gang, a gang of supportive people. And I think the other thing is, you know, having been to that brink, goodness, you realise just how wonderful family is. Mm. And this is probably where I will get emotional, but, you know, incredible support from my wife, Fiona especially in those early years when I suspect I probably wasn't the most easy person to live with, but her love and her support was just endless, just fantastic. And in the last couple of years, both our children have qualified as doctors, which is just fabulous. And of course, I would have been hugely proud of them, insanely proud of them if this thing hadn't happened to me. But it somehow feels that because I've had this great revelation this great sort of insight into the, the appalling fragility of life just how thin the thread of life is just how precarious everything is that my pride in the fact that they are both medics now fighting to preserve life is just off the top of the scale mm. oh it's just it's so powerful it's just it's yeah i i you kind of confounded me as, a, as an interviewer it's just ex extraordinary to to hear you to hear you talk about it and it's always just like i said it before it's just always so it's so inspiring just to hear people talk so freely about the things that make them who they are 
I think whether that's that's whether that's trauma or or their outlook on life or their sexuality or, or whatever it is, I just think there is there's more case for that to be a thing that's common amongst all people, not just talking yeah. about trauma, just people who can be open and free with themselves. I think we're we're often told to, to to keep a lid on things or to to bottle it up or or it doesn't matter to push things to one side you know focus on on the work or focus on you know the the sort of here and now and i just think there's there's so much extraordinary value in people just being confident yeah. to, to offer up themselves what well, in I, whatever shape that is yeah i don't think i struggle being open about ptsd because it's <laughs> You know, I know why it happened. It's mm. blindingly obvious why it happened. And there's no point in sort of making it worse by somehow feeling ashamed of it. And the fact is, it's it's definitely a work in progress. I, I really struggle with it still. But I do know the things that help me. And running is one and, you know, community is another. I'm still embarrassingly jumpy when out and about, you know, anything that happens behind me. Mm. And... Yeah, particularly if there's an open space behind me, I'm on edge. And I don't think that's ever going to change, but I think it's about finding ways to cope. Mm. Yeah. Gosh. And I think well, and you and you continue, I mean your your primary coping mechanism is 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 running it would seem. I mean, how many how many marathons are you up to now? Uh now up to 41. Extraordinary. Yeah, and uh, the most emotional one was number 31, the first one after after the stabbing. It was about 15 months after the stabbing, and it was purely because something about six weeks before that marathon really annoyed me at work. So I was a bit of a strop, went for a run, didn't think about distance, came back and I'd done 18 miles and thought, all right, <laughs> better book a marathon then. So, And I think for the first year or so after the, mar- after the stabbing, I was convinced that's it. No way. I'll never be able to run another marathon. But now it's lovely to just be back in the swing of it. And I think, uh, you know, it's like a a really good long walk or a really good long run. It just absolutely dials down the PTSD symptoms for a few days. It's the way of, you know, overcoming them temporarily. (laughs) They'll always come back. But, yeah, it's the way of uh, reasserting control, I think. Mm, Extraordinary absolutely extraordinary and are there are there any marathons on the on the horizon for you at the moment what does your what does your running calendar look like at the moment oh well the most recent one i did was a new one at goodwood motor circuit in west sussex and i thought i'd hate doing a lap marathon but i loved it actually and it was odd because 11 times you pass the finishing line 11 times you pass the table groaning with all the finishing medals and finishing goodies <laughs> and the first three or four laps that was awful seeing it but then after about lap five or six it was quite an incentive seeing it and that goodwood marathon is running again in december and i don't know there's something quite simple and straightforward about that lap marathon i might go back to or my favourite marathon, the Portsmouth Coastline Marathon, which is always the Sunday before Christmas. But that's a bit of a slog. So I've got this terrible dilemma at the moment. Do I go for the sort of more straightforward one that probably has lesser rewards? Or do I go for the absolute slog that is just pre-Christmas bliss? I don't know. I'm undecided <laughs> at the moment. Or do I do both? But no, they're only two weeks apart. No. You and strike I- me as someone who might take on that challenge. Yeah. Well, stupid. Yes. 
<laughs> well, someone who has extraordinary resolve and and mental That's strength. That's a polite way of putting it. Is yes. is actually what I I was thinking is and and I just think just just listening to you for this this past hour it, that I feel like that sort of exemplifies you is is someone with extraordinary courage and strength and and bravery and I just just want to say like th- thank you for for just sharing your story and thank you as well for, to, to all the individuals that you you know you spoke with in, in your in your book who've, who've come forward and and shared their stories as well and I'll I'll be sure to to put a link to the book if people listening are, are interested in in hearing more about um about those stories as well and um yeah it's just been just so I, I I feel it's so funny. I I not long ago finished a marathon. I'm desperately trying to just not run at the minute. Just take it easy. But just when you hear stories like yours, you can feel that that tingle in your legs. Like it's just I fired I, you I, up. I immediately want to go out for a run now, even though I absolutely should not. But it's just just yeah, just listening to you is well. You can because you can do that and just blame me. It's first of all. <laughs> I don't, I don't know whether that's a good enough excuse but um I would but... be delighted to be your bad influence <laughs> but um yeah it's it's been it's been extraordinary um talking to you Phil so th- thank you so much for for coming on on the big run and being such a such a wonderful guest thank you so much absolute pleasure really lovely to speak to you and thank you for your interest Huge thank you to Phil for coming on the show and sharing his extraordinary story and the stories of all those other incredible individuals he spoke to as part of his book. I'll be linking to Outrunning the Demons in today's show notes if you wanted to read it for yourself and find out more. Extraordinary, extraordinary man and extraordinary strength. Really, a really moving conversation that I thoroughly enjoyed. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, you can find out the latest um, on our Instagram page at the Big Run Podcast. For all the latest and greatest, there will be another Different Gear Live coming on November the 8th. So look out for that if you enjoyed the last one. And as always, if you're able to and the, the, the niggles are at bay and you fancy it, get out there and get running and uh, I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.